Welcome back to the second installment of our 2021 annual Rice Lecture here at the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies. I am Winnie Yip, Acting Director of the Fairbank Center. Before we begin today's discussion, I would like to take a moment to pay tribute to the victims who lost their lives at last week's shooting in Atlanta. This attack is part of a disturbing trend of increasing discrimination and violence against Asian, Asian Americans, and Pacific Islander communities. At Harvard, we stand together to reject this hate. Our collective mission as students and scholars of Asia is to actively work against such violence and the misguided views that drive it. Recent events show that the need to educate against the false narrative that few racism is more pressing than ever before. Events like today's, which bring understanding, complexity, and context to the study of Asia are more important than ever. The first lecture by Professor Rana Mitter asked, how new is East Asia's new era? This second lecture pursues one aspect of this question by asking whether East Asia is experiencing a new era of heightened emotion in its engagement with the world. One we need to look at last week's exchange between the United States and China in Anchorage to see but one example of how emotion plays a central role in China's and the world's contemporary diplomatic relationship. Echoing the first lecture, today's talk asks how new these moments of emotion really are, as well as how historical narratives inform contemporary iterations of emotionality. Today, we are also very delighted to have Professor Li Jie as the moderator and discussant of this, of this lecture. Professor Li Jie is John Loeb Associate Professor of the Humanities at Harvard University. She's a scholar of literacy, film, and cultural studies in the Department of East Asian Languages and Civilizations, where she also earned her PhD in modern Chinese literature and film studies. Her research centers on the mediation of memories in modern China. In her latest book, Utopian Ruins, a memory museum of the Mao era, she expertly asks, how cultural memories of the 1950s to the 1970s present an alternative investigation into China's revolutionary past. The book constructs a media museum of China's cultural revolution and offers novel and compelling ways of engaging with the politics of memory. The intertwined composition of memory, nostalgia and emotion positions Professor Lee as the ideal scholar to serve as today's discussion. Before I turn over to Professor Rana Mitter, I'd like to remind the participants that you can type your questions into the Q&A box. And um, when Professor Rana finish uh, presenting and Professor Lee um, finish her commentary and discussion, they will get to your question. So without further ado, let me turn to Professor Rana for his very exciting second lecture. Rana, please. 
Thanks very much indeed, uh, Winnie. A huge pleasure to be back with you, if virtually again, of course, here for this year's Edwin Rush Hour Lectures. I'd like to once again thank the entire team at the Fairbank Centre for making this possible. And I'd particularly like to thank uh, Professor Li Jie, or Professor Jie Li, I should say, um, for uh, being our discussant today. A, because I know that she has a happy family event very soon, and therefore it's very kind of her to spend time at this moment to, to do that, but also because um, her own work, uh, as Winnie has just indicated, is so relevant to many of the wider themes that I want to um, explore in the course of, uh, of today. And you will notice that I've very carefully skirted around some of the areas where Dia is much more expert than I am, but where I'm fervently hoping to be educated and informed in all sorts of ways that will help me to learn a great deal more. And when he did indeed start with uh, last week's China-US uh, summit in Anchorage, and I wonder if I might do the same as I share my PowerPoint with you. So last year's US-China summit in Anchorage, Alaska surprised many because of its undiplomatic tone. Yang Jieshu um, men uh, mentioned uh, the slaughter, as he put it, of African Americans during the uh, rather ill-tempered comments between the two sides. And by the way, of course, I wish to also uh, follow Professor Yip in mentioning the horror felt by everyone on this side of the Atlantic of the recent killings in uh, Atlanta, uh, as well, of course, as a whole variety of wider acts of violence in society in the US and all around the world. I think we'd all want to, to speak up against, uh, against those. But Yang Jishu's mention of the slaughter of African-Americans and the response from the American side that the Chinese were grandstanding was unusual in a relationship where diplomatic meetings, if not necessarily rhetoric from foreign ministries, tends to be rather uh, staid. Yet perhaps it was in some ways appropriate to the um, uh, uh, perhaps it was appropriate to what the writer Pankaj Mishra has termed an age of anger, although on occasions it can seem more like an age of snippiness rather than full-scale uh, outrage, one has to, uh, to say. And I wanted to use that as the entry point for my comments today, because last time, uh, a week ago when we were together, I talked about the concept of newness, and I used that deliberately slightly clunky term, not innovation, which perhaps has more the idea of the generation of new ideas in the field of technology or intellectualism, or novelty, which has the implication of surprise or even superficiality. And so newness was the term that I wanted to use to try and avoid either of those implications. I should also say, in the light of some of the questions that we had in a very lively Q&A session afterwards last week, that when I talk about this, I'm not talking about it as an ideology. And of course, you can't discuss China today, you can't discuss China in the pre-war period without discussing ideology. But I do think the sheen of newness is different. And I spoke last week also briefly of something that's been bigger news here in the United Kingdom than I think it is over in the US for those of you who are in America, but nonetheless, I think an important uh, event, the British Integrated Review of Foreign and Defense Policy, and the reasons that it's turned so strongly towards Asia, the Indo-Pacific tilt is a phrase that at least foreign policy circles are talking about a great deal over here at the moment. Uh, and the reason I think that they've chosen that rather than say Sub-Saharan Africa is the idea that much of the glamour in geopolitics today is becoming centrally located in East Asia, just as perhaps it, perhaps it was in certain ways in the early part of the 20th century. But today, I want to talk about a different aspect of the formation of East Asian modernity. And that links to the idea 
has gathered by now of emotion. The idea, as we see in the Anchorage um, confrontation, that anger is a shaping affective framework for relations in today's US-China relationship, as well as indeed the relationship between China and Japan, and indeed Japan and South Korea in a rather different way. Well, saying that anger drives that relationship is I think not that great a stretch, even though I think all of us watching are wary of imputing the emotional characteristics of individual human beings to an entire nation or culture or society. With that caution in mind, the incorporation of emotion into the study not only of history, where of course it's had a uh, very um, uh, powerful um, uh, influence on social history and cultural history in the last few decades, but also more recently of politics and international relations has become an extremely important interpretative turn. And I hope I might mention here my wonderful Oxford colleague, Todd Hall's book on emotional diplomacy, which looks at the relationship between China and Japan in exactly those terms. And for those who look at the international relations literature, the field of neuroscience has been in some ways as influential as the field of uh, cultural history in shaping that particular interpretation. Yet, I think that there is a danger in attributing too much of the um, interpretation of emotional response that underpins the growth of modernity in East Asia to one emotion only, which tends to be anger, and also to our own era only, the early 21st century. Because of course, and I hope I'm not giving away the ending here, every age is an, is an age of emotion. And indeed, every age is a mixture of many emotions, but not always the same emotions in the same mixture, nor expressed in the same way. I should add, by the way, as a sideline, I once uh, had, uh, I, I found an interesting conversation with a historian of emotions asking which emotions have fallen out of fashion over history. And uh, she thought about it and decided that Accidi, A-C-C-I-D-I-E, uh, is one that uh, very big in the early modern period, not so big now. So if anyone wants to do the uh, seminal work on the reintroduction of Accidi to international relations, I think now is your, uh, your moment. But sticking with the modern era, the idea of psychology, Xinri or Xinli, has been deeply resonant, I think, in the way in which East Asia has constituted itself and its international relations in the past century or more. And once or twice during this session, I'm going to nod, if I may, to one of the most interesting younger British scholars of Japan, Christopher Harding at Edinburgh, whose recent book on the Japanese I found extremely revealing. And Harding's exploration of the way that Freud's thinking came to Japan in the 1930s through the figure of Kosawa Hisaku, whom he calls Japan's first psychoanalyst, I think is a very good example of how some of these cultural turns can go in very unexpected directions. Now, I don't want to talk today about psychoanalysis as such, not least because I'm not nearly expert enough to be able to do so properly, but I do want to flag up something that comes from it, which is the constructedness of aspects of emotional response everywhere, of course, but in East Asia in particular, uh, in this context. I do not want to make some kind of crude separation into pre-modern ideas of emotional restraint versus modern ideas of emotional release. And I'll go on to talk about some of the ways in which those categories bleed into each other in, in just a few minutes. But I do think it's worth noting how much of the reaction, particularly in the China of the early 20th century, of those who sought to break down pre-modern culture was couched in terms which uptied to emotional response. I'm thinking here of 
Mao Zedong's uh, early famous statement that one should ride on bare horseback through the valley, making it ring out with the wildest of cries. Certainly it could ring a bell with advocates of modern screen therapy and certainly letting it all hang out was possibly the best way that you could show that whatever you were, you were not a traditional Confucian. The open expression of sexual longing in the writings of um, writers such as Dingling uh, in the early 1920s were also an important point, uh, turning point in terms of literature expressing a lot of uh, feelings that have not previously been uh, written about in quite such an uh, open way. So emotion and modernity seems a natural pairing as the 20th century unfolded in East Asia, just as of course it was in many other parts of the world. And the discourses of science and scientific education were supposed to bring a rational edge to the dilemmas of post-revolutionary modernity in early 20, uh, 20th century China. And by the way, um, again, particularly with uh, Jie as my commentator today, I should point out that as a diehard republicanist on this, uh, when I say post-revolutionary, I'm of course talking about in post-1911 and indeed post-1927 as much as I am post-1949. However, of course, science did not stand on its own as a new discourse in the 1910s and 1920s, but of course, alongside another new social and political change relating to affect and emotion. And Eugenia Lean has, of course, been one of the people who has pioneered writing about the way in which uh, public passions, in her phrase, could be stimulated by the conditions of capitalist modernity, as well as the creation of a new public that engaged with the media and in turn was shaped by it. And Meiji and Taisho Japan, of course, had already set the path in certain ways with the emergence of their new public shaped by uh, a new popular army, mass conscription, mass media, and other aspects, of course, of that swift transformation of the Meiji state. Um, the experience of the Russo-Japanese war was, of course, in some senses, essentially Japan's first media war um, and with um, apologies to, to Jean Baudrillard, I guess also uh, in a sense, um, Japan's first media event, although I think there are no doubts that the Russo-Japanese war did actually take place as well as being seen to, uh, to take place. The excitement of course whipped up by the mass media as part of that media war was very much part of the creation of public sentiment, along of course with some of the first signs of resistance. Um, and here we can think perhaps of the poet Yosano Akiko, who, um, if I can, sorry, turn the screen share back on again. Yes. Uh, Yosano Akiko, who um, was one of the powerful dissenting voices in Japanese culture at that time um, uh, against the war, or at least in some ways against the, uh, the war but who was attacked in wider culture for manifestations of that resistance, such as her poem, You Shall Not Die, cautioning her younger brother against becoming a suicide warrior in the Russo-Japanese uh, conflict. Um, I couldn't resist, by the way, putting up a picture here, not only of uh, Yasano Akiko herself, 
but also actually of the manga character by the same name, who is part of the uh, um, uh, a kind of long running uh, uh, popular series in Japan, which uh, Yosama Akiko is sort of reimagined as this sort of butt kicking warrior. So that is uh, perhaps slightly against what she would have uh, wanted in the Russo Japanese War, but I offer it as a sign of how cultural symbols can be adapted in some uh, perhaps unexpected, uh, unexpected ways. Of course, there's been significant uh, examination of the way in which white disillusionment and doubts during that particular era, particularly Taisho, can be seen in writers such as Akutagawa Ryonosuke being perhaps one of the, the most famous, but also that wider argument that emotion and affect and doubt are a central part of the self-definition of Taisho Japan, more broadly speaking. And certainly this was not absent, I think, from uh, China at a parallel time. The popular journalist, Zhou Tafen, uh, thought that China in the 1920s when he was writing and also publishing his uh, Shanghua magazine, which received very, very wide circulation with uh, quite possibly um, certainly six figures and maybe seven figures of, 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 uh, of readers during uh, its height. Certainly he thought that China in the 1920s had entered a new affective universe. One of the features of his magazine, which I've written about elsewhere, was a regular page where readers could write in with their questions about how to, how to navigate issues of men and women interacting in a new Republican public space whose values simply hadn't existed that way in the pre-modern world. Um, Quite how many of these letters were in fact written by Zhou and his friends, I think is a matter for uh, some speculation, but there's no doubt that nonetheless, the substance of them very much speaks to the issues uh, of social change in Republican China. In other words, modernity of that sort had to be performed in public and the link between the actions of the individual body and the body politic were at times asserted very clearly in a world where ideas about emotion and affect were also being debated. And so in a piece published in Shenghua magazine in 1928, Zhou wrote about ganqing feelings as an element in the modern workplace. And again, just consider that for a moment, the idea of the modern workplace, of course, in that context is still also one with only a few decades of uh, experience behind it, if that, at this particular moment. And so Zotafan wrote, there's a leader of one enterprise, uh, meaning a company, whose learning and experience are really admirable. But when I asked his employees what they thought of him, they all replied, quote, there is much to respect about him, but he hasn't got any feelings at all. In other words, uh, Zhou means, it's important not just that your employer pays your salary on time and, and gives you somewhere to work, but asks after your employees' personal lives or asking after them when they're absent on sick leave. And in this piece, there's a very clear sense that the swift arrival of capitalist modernity in China's cities has destroyed an old, if you want to call it Confucian, Confucian network of relationships and the emotional ties that come with them. And so it was an advocate of science and modernization but not at the expense of affective ties which bind society together. And one of the reasons I want to flag up this piece by Zoltafan, apart from the fact that I do think it, it seems very um, emblematic at that moment, is that a little later when I come back to, you know, close to the present day, many of these same issues of disconnection, of anomie, of inability to find a sense of community, I still think are running very, very strongly through the way in which these rapidly 
urbanizing and modernizing capitalist societies, particularly China most recently, but Japan before that, operated in the post-war. And in some senses, I think there's a sense of a cyclical um, tendency rather than one clear linear progression. So the world of early 20th century East Asia was then the site of an effect, effective revolution as much as it was the site of an economic or a social one, the close linking of the body personal and the body politic and that sense of trying to find newness, which was of course as much an emotional mission as it was a political one. Uh, revolution, I think, is the key element of that. Nobody who's read memoirs or accounts at the time of revolutionary tra self-transformation, particularly in China, but by no means only China. We think of perhaps some of the um, anarchists and rebels written about by Mikisa Hane a generation ago in Japan, who went through a transformation which was every bit as much emotional as indeed it was to do with any particular ideological um, uh, set of, uh, of precepts. So modernity, uh, of this sort claimed newness as a sharp break from what had come before, but of course, in fact, many showed many aspects of the pre-modern in its public manifestation, and also, perhaps importantly in this context, in its reference points. So that's why I picked out Zoltafon here, because I think that one of the things that makes him important is that he was not, and well, at least until quite late in his life, he was not a May 4th anti-traditionalist in that sort of classic uh, sense. He was not someone who first and foremost was looking simply to remove or reject everything that had come from the Confucian past. Much of his early writing is in fact a set of explanations about how various types of language that draws from a Confucian mention repertoire can be adapted to the context of a Republican uh, world. And in that context, I think it's important that he uses Confucian terms with immense emotional resonance to attack the enemies of the Republic, even, and this, as I say, is, I think, an interesting um, uh, uh, combination, at a time in the 1930s when he's much more explicitly Marxist in terms of his economic language and his um, understanding of how uh, the economic future of China is likely to work out. And again, if we think about the way in which one of the things that people ask about the contemporary Chinese um, uh, political settlement is how far it is Confucian, how far it is Marxist, as if these were incompatible elements rather than of course being elements of a much wider matrix, I think once again, we see the importance of understanding these uh, connections in a much earlier age. So. To take Zoltafun and how he uh, looked at these earlier reference points, uh, when writing about uh, Sun Yat-sen, someone for whom he had few, a huge admiration and who had died just a few years before, of course, in 1925, um, he used Sun's revolutionary credentials, an endorsement of ideas such as Zhongxiao, uh, loyalty and uh, filiality, as useful in criticizing those who Zhou felt were portraying the beleaguered Chinese Republic. And in doing this, he followed in the tradition of using a traditional Confucian language to create a framework for modern politics. So writing, quote, let's take loyalty first. The most significant loyalty is to your country and to the nation. But amongst our nation, there are more and more traitors who have sold out our country and nation day by day. And as one example, he names Zheng Xiaoxu, a scholar who had become the prime minister of the Japanese client state of Manzhou uh, which had been set up, of course, in the um, occupied northeast of China in 1932. And by extension, the people in North China have sold out to Japan 
become part of that um, circle of accusation. Um, and so Zotafan goes on, the authorities have to take a great deal of responsibility for the fact that on the political stage, we see these kinds of distortions of the ancient virtues. Now, someone we met last week again briefly, and as I say, I always like mentioning the historian Jiang Qingfu because of, amongst his many roles, he was of course one of the earliest trainers of John K. Fairbank. Uh, but in this context, again, I bring him back uh, for a different reason, that although at first glance, Jiang Qingfu's writings are not particularly concerned with the emotional landscape of post-1911 politics, but again, examined in more details, it's clear that his critique of politics was not just about political economy, but also he was concerned with the affective element of those politics, particularly during the years of the Sino-Japanese War. And Jiang frequently refers to the need to collect a sense of, to create a sense of collective identity. He's by no means alone, of course, amongst Chinese nationalists during this period. Uh, many of them have, uh, you know, essentially follow a version of Massimo D'Azeglio's famous statement after his argumento, we have made Italy, now we have to make Italians. And in this case, it's a question of making China and then having to make Chinese citizens. But in this case, it's the post-revolutionary geobody that was under attack. The Republic of China had been invaded by Japan and the legacy of that revolution, bearing in mind at this point, it is the red twin revolutions of 1911 and 1927 that he's thinking about, even while that state that embodied it was in severe danger of swift disintegration. So what does he say? Well, Jiang Tifu drew on uh, comparisons with European states that, was going through, that were going through what was essentially revolutionary fascist change during this time. And in his 1938 essay on uh, national strength, uh, uh, he described Nazi Germany, and then also on the other side, the Soviet Union, uh, with its five four-year plans, five-year plans, as being national defense plans, and saying, noting that youth were being trained as warriors, uh, observing that, quote, Stalin and Hitler both put plenty of stress on women's childbearing, their reasons being preparation for war. And we do know uh, that the, the, the natalism also became something of an obsession for at least some planners in China during the war uh, as well. Now, in contrast, Jiang Qingfu cited Anthony Eden, who had recently resigned as British Foreign Secretary, in which Eden had asked whether those who loved freedom would be willing to make sacrifices in the same way that those in authoritarian countries were willing to, uh, to do. And from this, Jiang Qingfu drew from Anthony Eden's speech the conclusion that democracies, quote, have not gone greatly into developing national strength. Um, what is interesting at this point, though, I think, is that Jiang Qingfu points out that, of course, there are a whole variety of things that the Chinese government should be doing. Uh, one of them is to you know, clearly improve the armed forces, uh, to, in, uh, to uh, increase industrial capacity, something with which he was fairly obsessed throughout much of, most of his life. All of those obviously fairly obvious, fairly mainstream. But in addition, he takes trouble to make it clear that invoking Sun Yat-sen, in fact, the most important task was psychological reform. And this involved essentially a kind of modernization of the mind all the way from the military through the education system, but essentially a change from the inside rather than just externally. And his argument combined analysis of political economy with an acknowledgement that affective factors might act against pure economic rationality. And that becomes one of the 
abiding threads of the way that Jiang writes about historical trends during much of this period. Uh, many of you watching this will actually know his work probably better than I do. And you know, certainly there is a strong Marxian influence early on in his life in terms of his economic modeling. But much of what he goes on to say, not least because he ends up actually taking a much more subjectively liberal position uh, near the end of, his, uh, end of his life, has to do a great deal more with um, uh, psychology rather than necessarily with, um, uh, with economics. And his arguments show or aim to show that potential contradictions between the economistic parts of nation building, which he actually support, supported in his arguments in favor of greater scientific modernization, and the affective part, which needed to acknowledge the strength of national feeling as it formed, even when that acted against economic rationality. It is not for someone sitting in the UK uh, shortly after the Brexit vote, as I am at the moment, to make too heavy weather of these contrasts. But I think you don't need me to point out that there are more recent examples of where these particular trends have come into conflict with each other. So as examples of national feeling overcoming economic supposed rationality, he cited, uh, or at least economic incentives at the very least, he cited amongst other things, uh, the refusal by uh, Germans to submit to French occupation of the Ruhr in 1923. And bearing in mind, these are all very much contemporary history examples at the time. They now all seem obviously you know, rather far off from our point of view, but when he was writing, the Ruhr crisis had been you know, just 15 years earlier. Um, and the, uh, the, uh, the German occupants of the Ruhr refused to accept exemptions on indemnity taxes, which um, the French would have offered them had they agreed essentially to their terms. Um, he also, uh, on the grounds of, of national feeling, or of course, he, he also cites the 90% vote in the 1935 Tsar plebiscite, which of course is just two or three years before his writing, uh, in favor of the region's return to Germany, despite financial incentives, again, from France to vote the other way in that particular case. And I should say, by the way, getting out of chronological sequence for just a moment, that this is not by any means just um, a tick of Jiang Tingfu, though in some ways I think the kind of combination of cosmopolitanism and liberalism, which shapes his understanding of the nationalist project in the mid 20th century, uh, is, by, uh, is, is typical, but by no means uh, individual to him. So we think of someone like uh, Wang Shijie, uh, foreign minister of China, we Played various roles, but he was foreign minister of China between 1945 and 1948 under Chiang Kai-shek. And when he went to the London Foreign Ministers Conference in September of 1945, uh, his diaries suggest he spent an awful lot of time trying to get the lay of the land, being somewhat discreet in his conversations with Ernest Bevin, uh, Jimmy Burns, um, Georgie Molotov, of course, you know, these sort of huge giants of the, the wartime and post-war world and working out where China was going to fit in with those. So he was pretty discreet in most of what he had to say. But in his own diaries, he records one occasion where basically he bursts out, you know, with a rather heartfelt feeling in, 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 in the conference. And that's um, when it suggested, um, again, a sort of part of the post-war cover-up, that the Main River uh, Westphalia region of Germany might be carved off from the rest of the country. And Wang Sijia says in his diary, I said that it wasn't right to dismiss this, uh, um, to, to, sorry, I said that it wasn't right to take up this sort of method if the people who lived in that region did not wish to separate themselves from Germany. I talked about the principle of nationalism, which should not be neglected even for the territory of your enemy. Now that strikes me as a really remarkable statement for the foreign minister of China to be making about a month and a half after the defeat of Japan, 
uh, and you know his first big entry as the foreign minister of an allied power, a major independent state, a permanent five member of the UN Security Council. You know, a kind of country attempting to kind of stride the the, the global stage at this uh, at, the, at, at this stage. The wounds caused by the carving up of Chinese territory over the past um, century at that point had clearly gone very, very deep indeed. And I think this particular outburst from Wang Shijie, while very heartfelt, as I say, expresses something rather wider that you can see in the culture, not just then, but also subsequently um, as well. And that uneasy dynamic between economism and emotion continued as the war ground on. In 1938, uh, Jiang Qingfu, I'll go back to him for a moment, oh, sorry. Uh, Jiang Qingfu wrote further about what he called the bases of national strength and listed a variety of material factors that could continue to affect that strength, including uh, political systems, school curricula, communications construction, economic development, cultural direction, or even the pleasures of private individuals. So culture matters, in other words. But he then went on to write in terms that recalled the most radical of the May 4th anti-Confucian reformers, declaring, quotes, if morality and national strength are in the balance against one another, then we should revise our moral outlook." End quote. The anti-Confucian moral stand was then followed with, with praise for perhaps an unlikely character, Chen Duxiu, co-founder of the Chinese Communist Party. Of course, he had actually been kicked out of the party and uh, turned to Trotsky by the late 1930s. Uh, but all in all, as I say, a perhaps slightly unlikely character for Jiang to, to praise him that. Uh, in that way. Um, nonetheless, of course, we should remember the intellectual bonds that held together all these graduates of Beida, Tsinghua, and so forth in the 20s and 30s. Remember that ideological differences uh, were often less important than actually old friendships. And if you don't believe that, just look at the picture of the people who were the founding members of the Chinese Communist Party back in 1921 and work out ideologically where significant numbers of them went in uh, later, uh, later years. It was certainly not necessarily towards Marxism. Um, so Jiang Tifu praised uh, Chen Duxiu for his call for the Chinese to become uncivilized. The bravery of the uncivilized person, he says, is from the flesh. He dares to do and to be. The civilized person's bravery, and I think this is meant to be contemptuous, the civilized person's bravery can just flow easily through the mouth or the pen. And I think there's always this ambivalence in Jiang Tifu's writings, actually, between you know, his own status of knowing that he's a scholar and intellectual, and this sort of feeling of admiration at times for those who sort of do, I guess, what Mao would have called jumping on the back of the horse and yelling uh, uh, in the valley as your cries echo off the, uh, off the walls. That's one area of emotional and psychological response in the early 20th century. But I think that things begin to shift again in the post-war environment after 1945. And I think this is a particularly rich area for the comparison of emotional irresolution, if you want to put it that way. Now, as John Dower pointed out so incisively, post-war Japan was a country whose public culture embraced defeat. But nonetheless, one has to start from that point of defeat and acknowledge that the culture of post-war Japan did not leap instantly into any kind of optimism that took a while to emerge, perhaps by the early to mid 1950s. And one vignette in uh, Chris Harding's fine book on the Japanese that I found, no, not that, very uh, indicative, is about this young woman, um, Hibari Misora, 
a child singing and movie star who was uh, a very big feature of Japanese popular culture in the 1940s and 1950s, uh, who was both very liminal in her identity and in some ways I think rather disturbing in terms of what she represented and what she was felt to represent. Her hit songs such as 1949's Mournful Whistle, Kanashiki Kuchibue, were very popular but also triggered huge debates within Japanese society about what they said about that society and particularly that aspect of its culture known as kasutori, uh, the sake dregs. The appearance of Hibari, this in some ways deeply disturbing character and her immense popularity, spoke to a wider sense of displacement that was a very real contrast to the shrillness of wartime Japanese propaganda. Although of course we do have to ask questions and there are many things that we know from other sources that give us leave to doubt it, whether the shrillness of propaganda reflected the reality of people's heightened emotions at the time. And I'll say something more about that in, in just a few minutes when we come back to uh, contemporary reflections of uh, that earlier culture. Um, it is, I think, too simple, simply to map popular culture onto popular feeling. Uh, and to give an example of that from the same period through film, uh, Tokyo Story, a wonderful film of emotional depth and reserve, came out in 1953. So that would uh, back up my theory here. But Rashomon, a film of um, immense exuberance, had appeared three years earlier in 1950. And frankly, the films may say as much about Ozu and Kurosawa as different sorts of film directors as they do about the context of the films themselves. But nonetheless, I think it is not too big a stretch to argue that the era of occupation state in Japan marks a clear moment of emotional recalibration, more broadly speaking. It's also been noted, although less comprehensively, that the post-war victor nation, China, also felt a sense of wider anomie that in some ways was remarkably similar to that of post-war Japan. And while I think it is fair to say that the post-war anime of, uh, of Japan and of China have been separately noted. The connections and combination of the, uh, of, of the interaction between these two has been less examined. That's one of the reasons I think that the opportunity to, to speak in a, an East Asian context can be, can be useful here. One of the finest pieces about this uh, phenomenon is Paul Pickowitz's um, essay uh, about uh, titled correct, uh, titled very astutely, I think, Victory as Defeat. And it's specifically about the 1947 film by Tsai Chusheng uh, and Zhong Junli, The Spring River Flows East. And that's been written about by Pickowitz and by others as a really good popular culture example watched by millions in China at that time of how the experience of the post-war did not have that kind of sense of uplift and optimism that many people would have uh, expected in a uh, victor uh, victor nation. And we know from some of the diaries and writings of people involved in the transition of China into the post-war at that time, that the sense of uh, disillusionment, the sense of dread was by no means confined to films alone. Many studies have rightly reflected the wider consequences, of the breakdown of security and of trust in post-war China as the civil war burst into life. But fewer people, I think, have noticed the way that the travails of the body politic were noted in the body physical of so much, so many of its leaders. What do I mean by that? Well, perhaps the most notable example is Chiang Kai-shek's private secretary, Chen Boulet, by his side for many years. And Chen Boulet's life reflect, reflects, I think, the difficulty of separating the personal from the political at this time. 
Chun's life was marked by decades of self-doubt and even self-loathing. There are frequent, frequent reflections in his life and in his diaries, um, including some over one particularly prized possession, a gold Parker fountain pen. Uh, I believe he was eventually buried with it actually, which came for him to symbolize his trajectory as he saw it in his many darker moments. And I have to say that if you read Chenfone's diaries, there are a lot of quite dark moments in them. He's not, not a bundle of laughs, this gentleman. Um, in his eyes, moving from being a talented and free-spirited journalist to be an, an, a nationalist activist, to being essentially a political hack. But it's clear that the effects of a wider context post-1945 China, of a center that can't hold, that also shapes his day-to-day -day existence. So just after the Japanese surrender on the 18th of August, 1945, really just a week or so afterwards, Chen Bulei writes, in these days, matters have become even more complex. My spirit is dejected when I think about national affairs. Political groups use the opportunity to divide us. The scattered and hollow nature of our own party is a problem, meaning the Kuomintang. Our strength is not being brought together. And this is also linked to economic pressures, which figure in his thinking. So this one's from October that year. He writes, I'm getting weaker as the years go on. I should say he's only actually 55 at this, uh, this point. He's not like an ancient old man. And he goes on, as I feel the serious economic pressure, I find it hard to stick to the path of righteous loyalty in the world of today. Which I have to say, I have no reason to believe that uh, Chambulé was anything other than personally entirely incorrupt in terms of his, his personal dealings. But uh, I have to say that uh, um, uh, this, is, this gives a wider indication of why one of the most uh, valid indictments of the nationalist government of that period, uh, corruption, uh, became such an all-encompassing uh, obsession for, uh, for so many. So going back to Chen Bulei, uh, here we have him in the middle of March 1946, uh, just in the middle of the big constitutional negotiations about the establishment of a national assembly with uh, multi-party presence, but in which the Guomindang wished to make sure that they would maintain a controlling role, what we would now call today a hybrid system, but that isn't what they called it, possibly competitive authoritarianism, but those terms, let's just say, were not being used at the, uh, at the time. So Chumbule goes on, from today, the position of the country and the nation is becoming more dangerous daily. My personal finances and the future of my household are more and more unsettled. I have no, I have no certainty about whether to advance or to retreat, I have no more strength to bear it. We should say also that uh, Chen Bule's life was being torn apart further by his daughter's involvement with the communist movement. Uh, Chen Lian became a very significant figure in the CCP, uh, very close to Zhou Enlai, uh, for at least for a while. And eventually, as many of you will know, uh, Chen Bule's contradictions in his life and his increasing depression, which clearly was, was medical, but was also exacerbated by the conditions of life, uh, led him to take his own life in 1948, to the huge shock, actually, of Chiang Kai-shek and of Madame Chiang Kai-shek, who was clearly devastated by this, uh, this occurrence. He wasn't the only one, I mean, not to take such an extreme end, but, uh, but to, to feel this sort of uh, uh, unsettlement. Uh, Zhang Jingguo, no less, the son of Zhang, Chiang Kai-shek and trusted emissary, was sent out to the northeast, to Dongbei, at this same time to negotiate with the Soviets. And his diaries frequently note, you know, on certainly a, a weekly, if not necessarily daily basis, his own emotional turmoil. Jingguo repeatedly notes how turbulent things are during the difficult month that he spends in the Northeast trying to deal with the Soviets. And in October 1945, he writes, whenever I laugh away the trivial things, afterwards, the worry 
increases. Um, and again, this is just one example of uh, the frequent occasions he, do, he does this. I should say, by the way, one thing that, again, draws from a particular sort of um, tendency that many of you will know in terms of the way in which um, Chinese, uh, originally Confucian bureaucrats, but I think the modern bureaucrats also tend to operate, is that one sort of um, uh, counter uh, uh, argument to the, um, uh, the, the turbulence and the, 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 the difficulty of, of organizing things is that many of these um, bureaucrats then start to write down very, very long numbered lists of what they're going to do. And at one point when he's particularly under pressure in Changchun, uh, he has a meeting with the Soviets coming up in the morning, he can't sleep. Jiang Jingguo writes an 18 point list of everything he's going to tell the Soviets. If I remember correctly, I'm doing this from memory now, so forgive me if it's not exactly the same meeting, it works out quite badly when he's written his 18 point list, he gets to get a bit of sleep, but the next morning he turns up at the meeting and the Soviets have quote marks, forgotten to actually turn up at the, the meeting in a, in a sort of calculated snub to him, which I have to say does nothing to improve his uh, emotional state of mind um, at, the, uh, at the time. One further example of the kind of uh, mass level of uh, depression that's really going around at this stage, um, our old friend just mentioned Foreign Minister Wang Shijie, back in uh, Chongqing and then Nanjing by this stage, um, goes to see paintings on a regular basis, artwork, saying, quotes, with this my depression is a bit relieved. And we see through his diaries that he keeps going back to sort of relax with artwork as things get steadily worse. Another figure, many of you will know the fantastic, wonderful memoir, um, uh, by the Great Flowing River by uh, Qi Bangyuan, um, uh, based in, in Taiwan, of, of course, but of course uh, grew up in wartime China and, and afterwards. And as she came back from exile in Chongqing, uh, she noted in the summer of 1945, and I'm using John Balcom's excellent translation here, we have looked forward to victory through years of life and death struggle, but we enjoyed less than six months of happiness. And her brilliant memoir also makes clear the emotional fragility that surrounded the whole experience of return from exile at the time. One more example here from, and again, some of you will know this, this memoir, uh, Huang Yao Wu, uh, then a very young um, officer, uh, junior officer in the uh, Sixth Army of the, the Nationalist Forces, um, noted in this memoir written much later, uh, about his deployment in early January 1946 up to Dongbei. So, you know, Jiang Jingwu had been sent up to negotiate, but troops were also, of course, being shipped uh, up to uh, the ports of the, of the Northeast um, ahead of uh, the coming conflict. And Huang Yao, writing in retrospect, says, I didn't know that I was going to, I didn't know that I was going to fight a civil war. I thought that the Japanese surrendered. I thought going to the Northeast would be like going home to Nanjing to deal with the Japanese weapons and soldiers. I didn't understand the situation in China at that time. And then he goes on to say, I know now more deeply that we were then still in a dream. And a year later, Huang became increasingly uncertain about how he really felt about uh, the, the war that he'd been thrust into. And his constantly chasing, changing physical location became part of his unsettlement. And again, this is a point that I deal with elsewhere, but. The sense of unsettlement is very literal for very many people in China at this stage because of the huge numbers of people in refugee flight at this time, as well as, of course, the constant motion of armies. And because it's something that tends to be recorded less, I think we often have less sense of that as an important element of what unsettles this particular period. Um, 
in the latter part of the Civil War, Huang writes um, that he was, he, he'd actually left the army. I mean, he you know, deserted essentially a couple of times, but no other work was available to him. And he writes, I didn't want to return to the army. I didn't want to fight a civil war, but I had no work, no food. I was just continuing to Yulang, float around everywhere. He recalled with some bitterness, people at that time couldn't decide their own fates. And by the way, you'll know that I hope if you have time to join me next week, I'm gonna be discussing the question of purpose as another element to the shaping of modern East Asia. And that's one of the things that I'd like to keep in mind as we flag forward to, to where we'll go with this next, uh, next week. Because that sense of floating, of Liulang, of anomi, was very common at the time. And unlike in Japan, there was no inability, there was no ability in China at that time to import a narrative that actively could change things. Because here comes, I think, one of the huge ironies of this period in East Asia. This was a particular moment when both Japan and China were in a moment of recasting themselves, and when past emotional shrillness in the context of war against one another gave way at least for a while to more inwardly directed and much more ambiguous emotions. But this is the irony, the importation into Japan of an alternative, which was allowed to find itself, an alternative which allowed it to find itself a new emotional universe, universe of democracy, the uh, Japanese democracy imposed essentially by the United States, also allowed the hybridization of a new form of Japanese self-understanding. In other words, Japanese democracy, of course, was imposed by the American occupation state, but anyone who knows it and sees it knows that it is not by any means the same as American democracy. Uh, it is neither better nor worse, but it's certainly a different and in many ways indigenously created political entity. And I think that that create, helped create the idea of also later of Japan's wartime era being the Kuraitanima, the Valley of Darkness, a sort of Zondervik adapted from Germany, just as Kyoto adapted its own philosopher's way, the Tetsugaku no Michi, that echoed the Philosophenweg in Heidelberg from where the idea had come. In contrast, a whole variety of political, social, and economic and military circumstances meant that China could not and did not generate at that time its own discourse of emotional confidence and certainly not under American tutelage. Of course, the people who eventually generated that um, uh, confidence were the CCP. And the emotional certainties that marked much of the public discourse of the PRC do seem to be reflected at least in part in popular feeling. And I know that Jie is one of the people in the world who is most expert on this. So this is one of the reasons why I'm gonna be very wary about what I say about it, but I'm looking forward to learning a great deal. But it's worth noting that at a time of national formation, that first period of 1945 to 49, even the language of the CCP at that stage shows a certain amount of hesitancy. Hesitancy is the last thing that you can argue is shown in the emotion of the most heightened part of the Mao era, the Cultural Revolution, with its own sense of revolutionary certitude. Japan had, I think, by this stage become rather scared of its own form of pre-war and wartime hysteria. And even though it saw, as we discussed last week, a resurgence, particularly resurgence, particularly in the 1980s, um, this was muted in comparison to its predecessor versions. And exceptions in the Japanese discourse, such as the nationalist politician Ishihara Shintaro, I think drew attention precisely because they were outliers rather than necessarily being particularly typical. I don't think they reflect 
the reality of someone like a mainstream politician like uh, Nakasone Yasuhiro. At this time too, China, I think, was also still relatively restrained in its global self-presentation. I think everyone will here will have some idea of the famous 16-character slogan of, the, of Deng Xiaoping about China keeping its light under a bushel and growing its strength, Taoguang, Yanghui, etc. But it's always worth noting that as much as being a political statement, Taoguang, Yanghui, and so forth, is an emotional statement as well about how you conduct yourself and how you're supposed to feel. Now, even at this time, the 1980s and into the 1990s, there was one area, of course, that generated a whole complex of angry emotion. And that is, of course, disputes over the memory of wartime, meaning the Second World War in particular. I'm not gonna say very much about that today for the simple reason that I have written about it elsewhere and recently published China's Good War about the Chinese aspect of that in the contemporary era. But I do want to point out now that anger is of course the most visible emotion that the disputed memory of World War II in Asia generates, but it is not the only emotion that it generates. It is of course one important element, uh, so continued anger over the separate narratives, what I've called in that book, the separate circuits of memory relating to war crimes in China, uh, the uh, women uh, in sex slavery uh, under the Japanese military and, and so forth. But I think that we would do well to remember that the emotions generated by the war in both countries um, uh, domestically um, provide very, very different responses. So within China itself, where there are, of course, very few Japanese people actually resident uh, today, and certainly none in a military capacity, and even fewer direct memories of the wartime period itself, really amongst only people of you know 80 something or, or above, the emotional heft of the war today is much more to do with China's sense of its own identity, not, I think, of its relationship with Japan in any real sense. Think of many of the issues that have really blown up around the idea of the war. Yes, on occasion, of course, the dispute over the disputed islands in the East China Sea, but more than that, the anger over Guomindang veterans not getting their pensions, which has been the subject of significant civil society activism in China in recent years. Essays by younger Chinese writers on how today's consumerism contrasts badly with wartime austerity, which creates the sense of collective uh, identity. Um, and in occasion, I think, the attempts to memorialize wartime, uh, World War II, as a substitute for the inability, even now for ideological reasons, to heal the wounds of the Chinese civil war, which is still very hard to overcome. These are issues in which the Japanese, as Japanese, are pretty marginal because they're about the emotional contours of China today. Uh, so they're about the emotional contours of China today, not of the China that existed a long time ago in a different sort of world in 1937. So for instance, last year's hit movie, which many of you may have seen, uh, The 800, Babai, uh, about the last stand of uh, uh, Chinese soldiers against the Japanese at the um, Sohang warehouse in Shanghai, was about all sorts of things. It was about the rehabil rehabilitation of the Guomindang. It was about the meaning of the war, the fact that the, the movie was um, banned for a year and then finally released to a huge box office in China last year. All of this was about many things, but it was far more about the protest from particularly red cultural circles in China about the absence, the total absence of the Chinese Communist Party from this movie than it was really about the very visible presence of the Japanese who of course turn up as villains who uh, 
uh, are confronted by the, the brave uh, Chinese, uh, Chinese soldiers. But in a sense, the Japanese um, villainy is not really the point of this film. It's much more about, in this case, the role of the Guomindang and what that says more broadly about the extremely protean emotional resonance of that particular aspect of recent Chinese history, which is still politically problematic, but permitted in ways that are very, very difficult still to reconcile with official uh, propaganda narratives. Now, in contrast, Japan's own engagement with the war is much more oriented towards its own sense of identity and memory. Unlike China, there is absolutely no way that Japan can look back on the war with nostalgia, bar some of the ultra-right, who I think are not the, the mainstream of, uh, of what happens in Japan. But the mainstream culture also does not look back on the war year as glory years, but rather as years that tell a story about Japan's own changing emotional landscape. And to pick out one example that could be there for many, uh, if uh, uh, I would cite um, this uh, wonderful uh, movie, and if you haven't seen it, I do highly recommend it, In This Corner of the World uh, from uh, 2016, Konosekai no um, directed by uh, Katabuchi Sana and a sleeper hit. It was not expected to be a big hit, and then it just went gangbusters at the Japanese box office in 2016, 2017. About a young woman, shown here, who gets married on the eve of World War II in Japan. She lives near Hiroshima, so you don't need me to tell you what's likely to happen near the, near the end. And her life is shaped in a dynamic between wanting to share the nationalistic sentiment of wartime Japan and the reality that as a young woman, her position in family and society is somewhat marginal. And in fact, one of the most powerful ways in which gendered views of modern Japan are transmitted to the wider world today, most literally in recent years in another fantastic manga, Kimi no Nawa, um, Your Name, which literally concerns a body swap between a girl and a boy. And I would suggest I spent all my time watching Japanese manga, but this is another fantastic one that you should definitely uh, see. But interestingly, very large numbers of them, including I have to say, this one and um, your name are written by men. So we should here, I think, also point out the uh, brilliance of women manga writers such as Takahashi Rumiko, Takaya Natsuki, and I'm sure you have your own favorites as well. So to bring to a close this particular set of thoughts, I started by mentioning Wang Jiechi and I, have mentioned in between, uh, sorry, I mentioned Yang Jiechi, uh, the state councillor uh, of foreign affairs, former foreign minister of, uh, uh, of, uh, uh, of China, and of course, the current foreign minister, Wang Yi, is a Mr. Wang. I've also mentioned Wang Shijie, another Mr. Wang, who was the foreign minister about 70 years ago. We know that the earlier Mr. Wang kept diaries, and as a historian, I'm very glad that he did. They are a fascinating read. I don't know whether Yang Jiechi or Wang Yi keep diaries. I have a feeling it might be a rather dangerous pursuit in today's China, but I really hope they do. And if they happen to be listening, feel free to send me copies. I won't tell anyone. I'll keep them safe uh, until the, uh, the moment you want them released. But even if they don't keep diaries, it will be fascinating to know what the internal deliberations were behind the emotional surface of those negotiations in Anchorage. Clearly, Emotional register has been a wide-ranging factor in the formation of modern East Asia. And I say that actually as a source of relatively little surprise because emotional register is a huge source in the formation of every single modern part of the world and pre-modern too. But the historical perspective reminds us that any one emotion, and there's little doubt that in today's Asia, anger is perhaps the emotion that comes up more than any other, but any one emotion 
cannot sustain, cannot last, and cannot be the only part of the emotional palette. After all, after one of the factors we mentioned last week, demographic decline, Japan's emotional register has become more muted than it was. And China too might want to note as it heads towards demographic change, that old men shouting can end up looking a little bit like King Lear, or perhaps it's more appropriate to use a Chinese example. Although again, here I advisedly use the word Chinese in its widest sense. After all, I ask myself sometimes, well, I have now asked myself, looking at that shouting match at Anchorage, would the Kanxi emperor have thrown a tantrum? Somehow, I doubt it. And so maybe I'll end with a hashtag. Perhaps that's the one that we could spread out to advise negotiators, not just from China, but maybe from around the world in terms of working out when to be emotionally restrained and when to let it all hang out. Everyone should perhaps be more kanshi. Thanks very much indeed to all of you for listening to me today. And next week, as I say, I'm gonna come on to the topic of purpose, but today, I'm going to hand over the emotional reins, as it were, to my brilliant commentator, uh, Dr. Dia, Professor Dieli. And uh, Dia, I'm honoured that you will be commenting today and would love to have your thoughts and your guidance on this. Thank you very much indeed, and thank you to all for listening. Well, thank you so much, Rana, for this very erudite and layered and also nuanced guide to the landscape of modern um, and contemporary East Asian emotions. And also many thanks to the Fairbank Center for this opportunity to serve as a discussant. Um, I actually just recently finished reading your wonderful new book, China's Good War. And I, I wanted to start with this inspiring idea that you were using in, in this book um, that you call circuits of memory. Um, and you write a uh, quote that the circuit transmits uh, memory geographically across national borders, as well as chronologically. So rather than everyone around the globe sharing exactly the same kind of uh, collective memory of World War II, uh, your book actually maps out several different kinds of circuits, um, one in Northwestern Europe and North America, another one in Russia and some of its neighbors, a third one in Japan and a fourth in China. And with China in particular, you considered the Chinese circuit of memory to have been uh, highly inward looking until recently, but that the country is now seeking to integrate that closed circuit in a way with more globally prominent circuits. Um, I found this idea to be a really productive framework. And, and I thought that, uh, I wonder if we can speak of circuits of emotion as well as circuits of memory. Uh, having listened to to today's lecture, um, because I, I I think it's it's uh, um, in fact we can it we can broaden it to talk about not just the uh, war memories but also how technological and maybe uh, electrical circuits have been mediating memories and emotions more broadly. Um, and one of the central questions you're asking here is also what is modern about modern um, emotions, what modernize. And I wonder if the role uh, of modern media um, has played um, a role in uh, sort of uh, connecting and mediating emotions. So how feelings have been wired in East Asia's past and present? What have been the role of mass media technologies in connecting, uh, mobilizing and politicizing collective emotions? 
especially national feelings that also play this big role in international relations. Um, of course, um, Benedict Anderson also pointed out the role of uh, media, especially print capitalism, in helping to create this uh, imagined community of the nation. Um, but he put a lot more emphasis on the mind than he did on the heart, um, a lot more on maybe, I, and I wonder if it's because of the medium of print actually demands literacy, more rational thought. Um, so do different kinds of media actually stir different kinds of emotions? Um, electrical circuits of radio, film, television, and internet have certainly mediated individual emotions into much broader collective sentiments and then maybe local feelings and local experiences into more national identities and more even global affective landscapes. So I wonder if it's fair to say that certain types of media are more emotional uh, than others. Um, so in the 1950s, for example, the, uh, the vice chair of the um, film bureau in China, Chen Huangmei, also called the film czar of the PRC sometimes, uh, he praised the medium of cinema for engaging the emotions of the masses much more so than say print. And then um, also listening to some of the metaphors that you use in or adjective using to, um, you use to describe um, emotions, especially like the brassy and shrill emotions of the Mao era and the emotional shrillness of Japanese wartime propaganda. It made me wonder if that kind of shrillness also has to do with sonic propaganda that's amplified maybe over popular songs, popular music, uh, radios, and loudspeakers. So um, actually on that note, if I may, I'm, I'll share just a, a, a brief film clip with you um, from 1961 um, uh, to illustrate also this idea of maybe possible um, circuits of emotion. It's a climactic scene of a film called Yingxiong um, Xiaobalu, The Heroic Little Gorillas. And it's actually, it's about a group of children who are imitating guerrilla um, war fighters in order to help the People's Liberation Army fire artillery across the Taiwan Strait um, in 1961, uh, in 1958, sorry. And uh, so in the middle of the battle, actually the children, uh, the, uh, not the children, the, the, uh, the People's Liberation Army telephone cable breaks down from enemy fire and the children are holding hands in order to connect it Meanwhile, singing a song that would also become the song of the young pioneers. So I shared my, oh, sorry. Oh, I, wrong share. All right, does everyone see this? And, uh, Yeah. 
So as a result of their efforts, the national flag, nationalist flag falls because the People's Liberation Army are able to issue their order. And uh, they are literally using their bodies to connect the telephone cable. So despite the implausibility of this scene, um, it's not scientifically plausible, it's the electrification of their bodies, their emotions, and their song that actually translated into this kind of military might and national strength. So um, that's kind of my, the, the first questions about in, in what terms are, uh, can, can we say that modern military, uh, media circuits are part of what made modern emotions modern? Um, and then apart from emotions relationship to uh, modern mass media, a major thread of your lecture today is about the relationship between emotion and power, um, especially politics, diplomacy, violence, and war. So when wired into these national international circuits, emotions are no longer personal or private, um, but also intensely volatile. We might even think about emotions short-circuiting thought in some ways. So, and the key feeling, I really appreciated the fact that you talked about how, even though we are mostly speaking about anger, but there's a much wider spectrum of emotional responses that underpins the growth of modernity in East Asia. Uh, so such as excitement during the, uh, from the Russo-Japanese War, disillusionment in the Taisho era, the continued emotional resonance of Confucian um, loyalty and filiality in Republican China, and the simultaneous cultivation of new feelings of national unity and strength. Um, in the post-war era, however, both China and Japan were dominated by ambiguous feelings of defeat, anomie, and uh, bitterness which the Chinese Communist Party was very good at transforming into these kind of emotional confidence and certainty. Um, so I, I wanted to just highlight the word bitterness, both because of your own earlier book uh, titled um, Bitter Revolution, but also because in the three decades of the socialist period, there was a lot of rituals of speaking bitterness that almost became the, the main emotion. And I, I'm really curious about this, trans, almost like an alchemy transformation of emotions from um, powerlessness into empowerment, victimhood into strength, defeat into victory, shame into pride and grief into gratitude to the communist party. Uh, and these kinds of speaking bitterness and uh, remembering bitterness rituals were also significant in cultivating class feelings um, or anger and hatred against the class enemies. Um, it, was, it was really fascinating to learn about Jiang Tingfu's um, notion of psychological reform because it made me think about thought reform um, in, the, in the Mao period, which is actually also uh, a reform of feelings. It's about uh, class sympathies of feeling uh, the right feelings for um, um, our friends versus the hatred for the enemies. And this accounts for so much revolutionary violence of this period as, as well. So um, given that your work focuses so much on the rise of nationalism in East Asia, um, my second question besides the media question is whether you see emotions associated with nationalism or patriotism as being um, destructive or sometimes productive. What would be productive types of national feelings? 
And um, in my final, I, I see that there are quite a number of um, questions coming in through, through the Q&A already. So I want to give maximum time to that. But um, if you have time, if you're interested in addressing it, since you're also um, a public intellectual and a historian who makes the past come alive in, in the present through mass media, um, do you feel, uh, that you know your your books written for a broader public and radio programs and te uh, television documentaries. Um, what kind of public emotions do you hope to evoke with this kind of uh, public media experience? Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for a fantastic set of comments. Uh, all of which, and by the way, if, if the picture looked like it was kind of shaking, as there was an earthquake taking place in central Oxford, which is not an area known for tsunamis or seismological uh, disaster, it's because the same laptop from which I'm broadcasting is also the one on which I'm frantically tapping notes because of all the amazingly interesting things that you had to, to say. And uh, you've just, I think, demonstrated in the last 10 minutes exactly why uh, I wanted to uh, have you comment on this and I'm so privileged that you, you did. So thank you for some really insightful comments and some really sharp questions. Um, obviously, a full answer to them would enable me to steal the chance to give another lecture. And I guess next week, one more time, I do get the chance to have another lecture. So I'll give brief answers now, if I, if I may, to your, your very thoughtful and, and I think to the point questions. The first one about how much mass media makes a difference. I think it wasn't until I started writing this and then also actually when I heard you kind of enumerate a whole variety of things and thank you for that film clip, it's absolutely wonderful, that I've come to realize quite how much of a difference it makes. And in a sense, I think it's foolish of me not to have made more of it because if there's one thing that American politics has shown to us in the last four years, it is that the use of modern social media the com the combined with emotion can have an immensely powerful transformative effect on the way in which democratic politics operates. And there's no particular reason. One of the things that I really, I mean, I kept sort of slipping this in, but I want to say it again. One of the reasons that I think it's important to think about emotion in the construction of modern East Asia is not because it's distinctive or different, or in some ways it's, it's different in East Asia from everywhere else, but rather because actually in some ways it's very typical of what happens in lots of other places, even though the cultural inflections in East Asia are clearly specific to the region and, and what goes on there. So I would say, in answer to your question, if we sort of start that process with the kind of work I mentioned that you know Eugenia Lean and, and others have, have done about how the print press really does create that idea of public passions, and I think that's a great phrase that, that's lasted. Um, and then through the kind of work that you've done so brilliantly about using you know, what you might call media on transmit mode, including things like the films that you've shown us and, and television. We're now in East Asia, in a different world as we are in the rest of the world, where actually mass media is about both receive and transmit. And it's about the creation of an ongoing conversation that doesn't just involve people who have the power over propaganda to be able to put it forward, but also those who are in contact with it to write back. And of course, we all know that Chinese media is censored very, very strongly indeed. That is not in any doubt. But I think we shouldn't let that distract us from the interesting nature of so much that is still said on Chinese social media. I have to confess I know much less, in fact, very little about Japanese social media, and that is a, a lack that I shall have to remedy at some point, although I'm hoping there's lots on it about manga. But on the Chinese side, I would say that all of the things that 
people tend to know that you know it's all highly nationalistic whatever it might be first of all lots of the chinese social media that i've you know dipped in on in and out of is about things that has nothing to do with politics whatsoever which seems to me actually one of the major areas of uh, of contention but that doesn't mean it's lacking in emotion um i mean if we think about things that have to do i mean people talk about mortgages a lot uh, that is true, I think, in many societies around the world, but sort of wider debates about that or about, you know, the nature of whether or not you have to support your family. I mean, when I was reading this, reading some stuff uh, recently about, um, oh God, what was it? Um, I think it was about mortgages and it was about people not sure that they could afford to live in first tier cities properly, that sort of thing. I found myself thinking about that Chambule, um diary entry about how, you know, I may be Chiang Kai-shek's right-hand man, but I've got any money and my kids, uh, you know, need to be married off and I need cash and these sort of things. So some of this, I think, actually is part of a matrix that in some ways is very recognizable from an earlier part, uh, earlier um, uh, incarnation. The difference is now that obviously the feedback mechanisms that modern social media allow, and let's stick with China in this case, particularly in China, can create a strengthening and a speed of response that is very, very different. I mean, as you'll know, if you've, been kind of, you've been kind enough to read my recent book. Uh, I looked in particular at some of the things that the Guofen, the so-called Guomindang fans, you know, uh, chat about on their web websites. But that's just one very small part of a much wider universe. Uh, and I would say that it's clearly going to be one of the most important areas in which we look at how emotional response to wider, uh, you know, political change is, is reflected in China, and I think in the rest of East Asia as well, uh, for, for many, many years to, uh, to, to come. That leads quite naturally to your second question about whether emotions can be positive as well as destructive. Well, I suppose to some extent it depends where you're standing from, because of course I imagine that Chinese nationalists don't sit there thinking I'm being immensely destructive and I love it. Uh, you know, some Russian hackers may think that, but they're a rather specific subgroup of, of what they're what they're doing. I think the problem is that, of course, everyone considers their own discourse to be positive in one sense or another. Whether other people consider it to be so is uh, a different issue. But what I think is visible, and this is, I think, one of the things when you see the lower registers of emotion rather than the kind of most shrill, angered um, versions of it, that people actually are talking very often about some of the things I mentioned in the middle section of my talk, but in a modern context, which is about anomie, which is about unconnectedness, which is about the feeling, you know, when you read Huang Yao's uh, uh, memoir saying, you know, we were all uh, we were all kind of floating around, we just didn't know what we were doing. You read lots of things that are like that. It's not because there's a civil war in China and there isn't going to be. So, you know, it's wonderful that people live in a time of peace and let's hope we will keep it that way. But the feeling that somehow you're disconnected from a wider project, that is something that I think that any government or society suffers at its peril. And it is certainly much more productive to try and find ways in which people can find a sense of collective identity that is mutually constitutive, economically productive and peaceful rather than anything which breaches those particular boundaries. I, I don't think it's impossible to, uh, uh, to find, I would, uh, I, I would say. Um, and your very final uh, question I should briefly uh, uh, answer. I think actually, if I have any purpose in the, the sort of bits and pieces I put out now and then when I'm not doing my proper job, which is reading Wang Shijie's diaries from the 1940s, and very good they are too, um, I hope it's about emotional complexity. One of the things that is very live in the UK at the moment, as it is in the US, is a debate about what's going to happen with China as a big actor in the world. And I'm the first to say, and I'll say it again here, that any number of things that are happening with China in the world, Hong Kong, Xinjiang, and so forth, are deeply, deeply disturbing and must be something that we talk about a great deal, including with our Chinese friends. 
But the idea that we can discuss China purely in terms of very, very simplistic emotional responses, or indeed any issue, particularly the most problematic ones, um, I think is not going to lead us to somewhere, it, it may lead us to a place where we have kind of short-term feeling that we've done something that makes us feel good emotionally. It doesn't do anything very much either for those, I think, who are on the receiving end of evil behavior, or those to whom we wish to speak and say, actually, there are good reasons why actually this should, uh, this should change. So if there is something that I'm injecting with anything I say, I hope it is emotional complexity on all sides. Thanks for that, that yeah, I'll let you handle the, the, uh, the Q&A uh, uh, if you'd like to take over. Yes, thank you so much for this note also, um, ending on this note of emotional complexity. I um, see, I'm gonna group together a couple of the questions uh, because uh, quite a few of them concern um, emotional emotion in diplomacy and then also the so um the first question from um is is can you reflect on the instrumental use of emotions as in prc official complaints about hurting the feelings of the chinese people or the deliberate channeling of anti-japanese protests we see such appeals to emotion across prc's contemporary diplomatic repertoire and i wonder about its origins and a related question to emotional diplomacy is uh, asking you to recommend work on, of emotion on public diplomacy and people-to-people -people relations. Um, another uh, question uh, related to emotional diplomacy is how might Wellington Koo fit into your larger narrative given his long life and uh, Republican affiliation? Um, and uh, yet another question asking you to comment on hurting the feelings of the Chinese people. This is a much mocked phrase outside of China. Who decides what those feelings are of the Chinese people that are hurt? Absolutely. Now, these are great questions. You're getting me on the, you know, you, you, if you start me off on Wellington Coup, you're not going to get me stopped before the end of the lecture. So I'd be very careful about it. I was just reading a little bit about uh, uh, Gu Weijun and his, uh, he was having um, a diplomatic dinner at which Wang Shijie was actually present in 1945, in which basically he, Ernie Bevan and um, Jimmy Burns were discussing, discussing how to uh, outwit the Soviets. So uh, they were getting in early on that particular game. I think one thing I'd say about that grouping of people, um, and I think this does relate to emotion, him, Jiang Tingfu, Wang Shijie, a whole variety of these folks, almost all of them men. Uh, Sung Meiling might count in this category, but let's be honest, the, the mid 20th century is a pretty male-oriented uh, period and not to its benefit, I, I think. Um, we're all people who, because they were steeped in the Anglophone world, particularly um, uh, Wellington Koo, also, I think, had some understanding of how to handle emotional registers differently as well. And I think one of the reasons why this very weird phrase, but very long-standing about um, the hurting the feelings of the Chinese people has become such a, a kind of standard trope is that it has actually a historical resonance in, in China. And many of you on this, you know, I've had a quick look down there, I see many distinguished historians on this list. But if you think about the long history of Guochu, national humiliation, and all sorts of discourses that date from the late Qing, from the Republic and before, which are not exactly the same as, you know, hurting the feelings of X million Chinese people, but nonetheless come from the same sort of emotional repertoire in terms of emotion, or rather things that have emotional heft to them. So Chu, that comes from, you know, very broadly speaking, a 
repertoire of emotion in which ideas of, you know, zhong, xiao, and these sorts of ways in which you're supposed to feel, you know, what, what makes you proud? What makes you ashamed? Now, in all societies around the world, there are huge numbers of shared experiences, it doesn't matter whether you're Chinese or British or American, or whatever it might be. But we also know that there are certain types of emotional response that are geared to the nature of the society that you're in. And I think in that particular context, a great deal of the rhetoric that's being used by China in this case, just like a great deal of the rhetoric actually that's used on the West towards China, as I've indicated, is rhetoric that is designed, or rather, that, now let me, let me say, it's not just that it's rhetoric that's designed to appeal to a domestic audience, because that's a different argument. That, that's an argument that basically this is propaganda for the home market. And I think there's a strong element of that as well. But I want to say something slightly different. It's that people tend in all societies, even when they're dealing with international affairs, to use formulations and language that they find emotionally resonant and comfortable because it comes from their own, their own emotional repertoire. And because emotional repertoires around the world are not that different, you know, uh, uh, the Chinese idea of chu is not massively different from the British English idea of humiliation or the American idea, but nonetheless, they don't sit in exactly the same place in terms of the emotional repertoire. And I think it's, you know, the uncanny valley, uh, the idea that, you know, a, a robot that looks very, very much like a human is much more unnerving to humans than a robot that's basically a big tin can with, um, you know, kind of over the end. I think there's an uncanny valley of emotions as well, where producing an emotional response that sounds a bit like what the other person thinks they're hearing, but isn't quite the same, feels much more jarring than it uh, it does to simply say something that's completely out of court. So, you know, when Mao's China was saying something, uh, uh, something along the lines of, uh, you know, the, it's, it, the, the revolutionary future uh, will, you know, the, 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 the world will be red and we will, we will, the East will overtake the West. This, you know, is sort of, could be counted as being something so wildly outside what any Westerner would say that it didn't, it didn't matter very much. These statements about hurting feelings have enough resonance to make people feel worried, but not enough valency to enable them actually to be uh, to be effective. So that's my very quick and probably quite amateurish take on why I think that it goes uh, it does work. One last thought so on the back of that. I know we've got to before we come out of time. But just one thought. I think it's very notable that one of the relatively rare recent occasions, and yeah, you can correct me if this is wrong, if you can think of other ones, but relatively recent ones where emotion and its results were a given sort of semi-official sanction, sanctions was in the late 1970s during the period of Shanghan Wenxie, the scar literature, which was explicitly about trying to find emotional responses to the trauma of the Cultural Revolution. I use the word trauma um, advisedly, because trauma does mean wound in Greek, and of course, uh, shang is also wound in, in, in that sense. And that's kind of scar literature, I think was of quite rare occasion where if the state was not exactly taking the lead in terms of that kind of equation between physical hurt and emotional hurt, it was at least sort of efficiently allowing the way for it. And before then and since then, I haven't seen that many other occasions when that's been done. And that may be to do with the fact that the Cultural Revolution is one of the very, very few Mao era, CCP era events that has ever officially been acknowledged as being partially reversed. So that may have something to do with it. Oh, absolutely. Actually, this relates to one of the questions that were, was just asked about uh, remorse as a, do you see much evidence of remorse as an emotional response? And especially in relation to the many uses of violence against one's own people and those elsewhere in the in the region. 
Um, and um, because of the, the uh, limits of time, I, I kind of wanted to mention two other related questions about more sort of negative emotions or suppressed emotions. Um, so one other question is about how and through what channels did different political regimes in post-1911 China suppress manifestations of undesirable collective emotions? What are the similarities across regime types in defining undesirable uh, collective emotions? And then another question uh, on the century of humiliation that um, officially concludes, as, as the long uh, century of humiliation officially concludes in China, would you say that memory of humiliation is a kind of emotion or that it artificially feeds and traumatizes emotions as shame and anger or triumphalism? Wow, fantastic questions all. And obviously in a very limited time, I'll have to give a, a, a brief answer collectively uh, to, uh, to those. I think we could take the question about remorse and the question about sort of unacceptable emotions, perhaps as part of a wider spectrum to, to, to answer together. I think it is certainly the case that particular sorts of emotional response that are more readily recognized in a Western and particularly Anglophone context are harder to characterize in an East Asian context. But I would give an exception here. Remorse is one, I mean, it's not the only way that you see it, but remorse is one of the ways that essentially aspects of the Christianization of Western culture has made its way into secular culture because remorse has to do with the idea that you say something that desires forgiveness and then you know you're forgiven and then you make it through to the other side. And clearly, forgiveness is is perfect. Is you know is as valid in uh, Confucian or other culture as uh, uh, as well. But the idea of essentially a type of emotion in which you admit your abasement so that you can be raised up again is not, I think, necessarily something that the most dominant regimes in East Asia in you know, the recent century have been particularly oriented, uh, uh, oriented towards. Even now, and again, I know I'm stretching wildly here, the last couple of minutes I can't be called on this, but you're welcome to you know, kind of give me a hard time afterwards. Even now, I think in Japan, it would be harder in many cases for politicians to, for instance, if it's politicians, to say that they, not that they've got something wrong, because basically all the people resigning from the Olympic Committee in the last few weeks uh, shows that that happens quite frequently, but rather to admit that there's something sort of fundamentally wrong about them, which then is going to you know, be overcome through the process of sort of being, being redeemed in that, uh, uh, in, 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 in that sense. The final thing that I, I'd say on the, on the back of that is that I think that there may be a difference in different sorts of uh, cultural background, because I think the particular ways in which, for instance, um, the idea in, in, in societies which have a great deal of encounter with different sorts of philosophical and religious tradition may have changed the mixture of these. And I say none of these things kind of exist in and of themselves, they all mix together. And it's possible that because the number of cultural influences for a long time in mid 20th century China between 1949 and say the 1980s was relatively limited compared to what it was either before that or after that, that you might see a wider set of responses in that sense. The, the circuits of emotion, to use your brilliant phrase so that you've taken there, Jay, I'm gonna steal that, but with acknowledgement, perhaps that's a good place to, to, to end it. I think in China in the 20th century at least have kind of been widened and then narrowed and then probably widened again. And so it's probably to there that I'd be going to do my homework and try and work out whether or not, in fact, you do get that wider set of different emotional responses 
that perhaps come from exposure to different cultural traditions during that uh, that time. Well, thank you so much, Rana. Actually, on on that note, our um, I think our our time is uh, more or less. Up. I'm apologies to um, some. There, there, there's one more actually question about guilt, which is re related to remorse as well. I don't know if you wanted to take that or the culture of shame and the culture of guilt and uh, because this sort of relates to what you just said or um, maybe we... Oh, is there time or... Um, well, um, it is, we are at time, but if uh, you, uh, I think this is a compelling question, if you can... All right, well, if I have, if answer well, that, well, that one, one minute, I yeah. will do my best in that case. Uh, yeah. I will do that too. Culture of shame, so that's from, uh, yes, I see from Olga's coming in here, the culture of shame or the culture of guilt. Um, yeah. Okay. I'm going to skirt around this, which will make it shorter as well. It's a great question. It relates, of course, to a huge debate over the anthropology of East Asia, uh, you know, Ruth Benedict and all of that from the, the mid 20th century. Mm -hmm. The problem with it is that shame and guilt are both English language terms that are used to translate particular types of affect that exist in an East Asian context. So um, I would, um, you know, I, I would reverse it by saying things like, Come on, what what do the English well, actually English? Uh, this is probably you say, what, what do the English really mean by honne and tatemae? You know, how would they understand those terms? Or uh, you know, you, you could think other ways of putting together ideas that you know clearly do have some sort of translated equivalent. But in the end, I think say more about the societies in which the language that produces them emerged than they do necessarily about the culture to which they're uh, they're applied. And my final kind of reference here to another brilliant work, I um, would refer to my uh, wonderful LSE colleague, Lee Jenko's fantastic book, Changing Reference, which is all about the idea of how particular sorts of classificatory terms in Chinese in particular is thinking of might or might not be applied in terms of thinking about concepts, in her case, in particular in political science, but it could apply to a whole variety of other areas um, uh, areas uh, as well. And there's a huge fascinating debate about you know culture versus universalism that I wish we could start now. Perhaps it's lucky that because we're about three minutes already over time, that I'm going to have to hand back to Jia at this point. All right, thank you so much, Rana, for um, this wonderful uh, sort of answers to this set of questions, and I look forward to seeing the um, the book version of this or the <laughs> eventually how you. Um, this on. And also, thank you everyone for coming. Um, this is a great turnout, and thank you for all your thoughtful questions. Um, okay, good night or um, good afternoon. <laughs> Bye. Thanks very much, everyone, and hope to see you next time next week. Yeah. Actually, yes, 5 p.m. if you're in the UK, where the time will change, but same time in the US. <laughs>